This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we talked to Jeff Moore of Yahoo to see how they use NetApp products and what sort of interesting ways they manage a massive storage footprint. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi, and on the phone with me today is the indefensible Glenn Sizemore. Guilty as charged. How are we doing, Justin? Great. Whoa, I hear sounds over there. It must be the other people on our call. Um, so today we're going to talk about uh, some use cases for, for NetApp uh, from a real live breathing customer. We, we actually let this one breathe. Um, so today we brought in Jeff Moeller from uh, Yahoo, as well as his uh, sales counterpart, Ahud Kaldor. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Oh, I did it right. So hi, guys. Hey, how you doing? Super. Uh, so, Jeff, I, I would like to start off with, uh, you know, thanking you for joining the show. But, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, as well as your experience with NetApp uh, and, you know, as far as what you do at Yahoo. Sure. Um, again, my name is Jeff Moeller. I work at Yahoo. I've been here about two years now. Um, my job at Yahoo is as a senior architect for storage operations. Storage operations touches a lot of what the public sees as far as Yahoo storage. Um, we, uh, we're responsible for mail, front end, back end, Flickr, um, a lot of our object store that stores a lot of your content within mail that's not the body. For example, bodies are stored in one place, you know. Uh, objects and other attachments stored in another place. Um, Tumblr, Tumblr's out on the cloud. We help those teams. But we deal with a lot of what the public really sees as far as front-end storage. Um, we're well over an exabyte in just NetApp storage, and that's growing every quarter as we have new use cases and uh, growth within the properties that we serve. I uh, My history with NetApp was as a customer. I had some of the first uh, Fast 760 um, HA pairs at a company that was called Williams Communications in Tulsa. Um, I had three of those. Uh, each of those were a whopping one and a half uh, terabytes. And with those, I ran the world's 14th largest uh, Usenet news server. Um, past that, I came out for training with my wife, who worked at Bank of Oklahoma. And uh, three days into our training, we demanded jobs and moved out here as quick as we could in mid 1999. And I worked with NetApp up until about the year 2012, did some independent work outside of NetApp, and now I'm here at Yahoo, and I've loved every bit of it. Excellent. So um, what is your day-to-day role? Like, uh, I mean, and what sort of tasks do you get into, and what are, what are some of the newer things that you've been involved with? So a lot of what I'm doing today is working with refreshing our environment from older hardware into newer hardware as it, as it ages out and supports out. And a lot of my time recently has been working with all of our properties across NetApp that are doing refresh work and making sure they get the right hardware for the right use cases underneath them. What's been taking up a lot of my time is understanding the changes in what ONTAP's been able to provide us in the last five to seven years and seeing which pieces of, the, which pieces of those technologies um, fit best with these properties. It may be we can use compression a lot better or we can use dedupe more inline because it wasn't inline back then. Moving people from 7 mode into C mode, um, making sure those architectural challenges are met so it's an easy cutover for those properties. 
but mostly just making sure that what we have uh, with NetApp stays sticky, stays relevant, and it's being used the right way looking forward into the future. So with the ever-changing landscape of IT where we start talking about things like DevOps or containers yeah. or any of that sort of stuff, what's your involvement with that, and, and how is that changing how you have to think about storage? Well, the storage world is changing. Um, you know, uh, inside looking out, it, it, it feels and looks a lot like a race to the bottom. Who can provide the cheapest stuff with the absolute cheapest way of doing it? The challenge with that is as, you know, as an entity, you know, we're, we're approached by a number of people who have the latest, the greatest. We think we're the cheapest, densest, white box solution there is. The challenge is looking at, you know, how resilient is that data set going to be? You know, what's its uh, not just protection layer, but what are the uh, what are the dependencies in managing, you know, the protection of that data? And uh, the engineered solutions are still very, very dynamic in our environment. But as we start looking towards our own hosted hardware with software on it, ONTAP Select has been a big part of our future. Um, we have environments where we need to say, for an example, I've got five days to restore 10 petabytes worth of data. How do I do that? Um, I'm not going to buy the hardware I need just to have racked up in a cabinet to restore that you know, off a of tape and have it sit there and maybe never use it. So how does ONTAP, ONTAP Select become relevant for our use there. And uh, our testing with that has been pretty positive so far. We had a meeting this morning on gathering additional data from, uh, from ONTAP Select for the engineers here to help make our experience even better with it. But uh, in the end, what we can do a lot with white box storage, which to us right now is ONTAP Select, is being able to bring up large amounts of storage in a very short period of time, whether it's within our OpenStack environment or just server capacity we have racked up waiting to be used on a quarter-by-quarter -quarter basis and doing large amounts of workload, whether it's augmenting our shared storage environments or bringing up a large amount of storage just for NDMP restore targets. So what's your cloud strategy looking like? I mean, are you guys looking towards the cloud or are you looking at, you know, on-prem cloud? We're, look, we're looking at all of our options right now. Um, all the big players we've been looking at, um, ONTAP, ONTAP Select may be a part of that future. Um, we're still early in our work with that, but it, it's absolutely an option. We are looking at on-prem cloud. We have been looking at storage grid, um, but we don't have anything defined yet on what we're going to be doing with that. So you mentioned storage grid. Um, are you guys using any other NetApp products besides Select and storage grid and classic ONTAP? I mean, are you looking at SolidFire, E-Series, uh, OnSite, uh, I'm sorry, OnCommand Insight? Yeah, we um, we have E series in our broadcast locations. We have uh, we have three broadcast um, locations in the U.S. We have New York, Playa Vista, down SoCal, and here in Sunnyvale, and they manage all of our live broadcasting. Um, it could be the football games that we broadcast, any of our sporting events, and of course the general Yahoo broadcast uh, program that we have out there. Um, e series has been really good with us. Stored next on top of that is made very efficient, very fast. Um, we were challenged with looking at other ways to do and manage our storage for the broadcast environment, and e-storage is the only thing that held, held any water. Um, it's, it's very cheap. It's very dense. It's extremely reliable. We're very happy with it. Um, we've got a lot of 7-mode classic, as you can imagine. Um, we have a lot of C-mode. Everything's going into C-mode. Um, that's been a very easy transition for us, too, because uh, we don't have to move things in place. We have to move things to new systems. So the properties within Yahoo can move to SEMA very cleanly, very easily. A lot of the advancements in updating ONTAP from 8.1 to 8.2, 8.2 to 8.3, and now 8.3 to 
those have gotten just click, you know, set it and forget it. it. It's become very easy for a team to, uh, to upgrade existing systems into newer code. Before we move on to the other products, I was kind of curious uh, if we could stay on that just for a moment. Sure. Uh, because you, 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 you and, and, and Yahoo do have so much experience with this, and this is something that, that a large majority of our customers are living with. You know, if you could, what what is one of the things that that you're finding now running in the cluster data on tap environment that, you know, perhaps was unexpected uh, that 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 uh, is better than before with with your legacy environment, and then vice versa. What is one of the things that you miss? Volmove, we really enjoy Volmove in our in our HFF workloads. Our HFF workload is a shared storage environment. What you know, another 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 environment might call a home directory. It's just where do I put stuff where people can't afford their own storage or don't have a need for their own filers? Mm-hmm. Our HFF environment is uh, shared across seven data centers. There's about uh, 15 petabytes of data in it, and there's probably about 35, 45,000 volumes with that within that environment globally right now. So, Volmove has been a big part of our uh, transition into C mode, and that's brought a lot of uh, benefits to us. And you mentioned earlier the non-disruptive upgrades, right? So I mean, that's that's going to be a big Not, yeah. And the, the, the non-disruptive upgrades um, have been great. You know, we had a we had a we had some uh, work to do to get you know eight zero into eight one, and now we're moving everything out of that's still on eight one into eight two. Eight two to eight three was better. Eight uh, two to eight three has been fantastic, and eight three to nine zero. Solid engineering work has been done there, and it's type of command. Everything rolls through, does its own upgrades. We may still have uh, someone watch the process, but they're not frontline involved in process anymore, and that's made that a lot easier for us. And what about stuff like the exports, right? So, like, we changed the way we did NFS exports from a flat file to tables and making sure we use policies and rules. How, what's your experience been with that? That's been very positive. Well, it's it's helped us in a lot of our automation. Um, right now, any property within Yahoo can uh, log in and uh, secure, you know, 30 terabytes of storage with, with no requirements other than saying, I want it, I want it here. They fill a form and it gets done for them. Uh, it, it's really improved a lot of our automation processes within our own tools. We do have the ability to use uh, your workflow management tools. But coming from a legacy um, environment where those didn't exist before, we've stuck with our own scripting. And those have made it a lot easier for the automation people to understand what they're doing and then our support layers to understand what's going on within a system if some troubleshooting comes up. So we're very happy with that work, too. Outside of the uh, orchestration tool sets, because uh, quite frankly, you don't need to use those if you don't want to. The APIs are, are enough if, if, if you've got the skill set, and Yahoo certainly does. Yeah. Uh, how about the monitoring tool set? You guys got to make any use of on-command insight anywhere? We're starting to. We're, we're starting to evaluate uh, where your tools have uh, matured over time and stack those against what our wants and needs are in alerting, monitoring, um, future casting, um, as, as some of the OPM engineers might put it, and some of the things we've seen, and stack that up against our own internal uh, diagnostic and uh, internal tools. And then Ooh, which direction I we want to go. Yeah, I can't wait for you to bring the report card back to the account team on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can't either. That, that's something we're starting in earnest um, actually right now. Yeah, we're going to start looking at the OPM and OCOM tools in their data center in Oregon. And uh, put those, uh, you know, up in our wants and needs, and understand what we can and can't do internally and externally. 
One of the big things we really like about what is coming into um, OPM is the ability of the tool to understand where it's been and where the workload's going now, and then proactively alert us or property owners on shifts in that workload that are outside the expectations of the tool. Um, it's something I've been asking for and even, even trying to develop and work for when I was at NetApp. And it's very similar to what the California you know, ISO power grid managers look at. They go, we know what the time of year is. We know what the weather's going to be. We understand what we can produce. Now, here's what we expect to happen tomorrow. And if that chart breaks out of what it expects, they know they need to do something, and they know where the problems are. Uh, in our environment, with the sheer scale of just shared storage volumes and, and, and data storage I mentioned, that's going to be very important to us. We just don't have the resources to put a lot of intelligent binary scripting into that kind of alerting, and we definitely can't have a lot of people looking at it on a regular basis. So OPM, we hope, is going to give us a really, really big win there in our management. Yeah, that's uh, what 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 uh, our friend Tony last week likes to call turning sharks into minnows. You know, finding those really big workloads and then being able to start to strategically think about how you can break those up and make them more manageable. Yeah. So uh, with the team here, they're trying to get me into the 7.2 um, pre-release so I can. Nine dot two. Nine dot two. Oh, OPM. Oh, OPM. Yeah, the 7.2 dot product, so we can manage one pane of glass and then uh, and then and then really move forward against our other single pane of glass internally. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, Unified Manager does a good job of integrating the two. Yes, and our challenge has always been, you know, I've got three thousand filers. How do I how do I use NetApp tools to manage that? Well, I don't need to manage three thousand systems. There's probably 150, maybe 200 systems that are really, yeah. really important to me on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, and the rest are managing workloads that are fairly, uh, fairly quiet and settled. You know, we're, we're we're the Gulf of Mexico of storage here. It's very wide, but you only get wet up to your feet. <laughs> That's an apt analogy. Um, yeah, absolutely, and, and and it goes back to that that whole concept, right? Of of just knowing knowing who the sharks are, just just worrying about the problem children and letting yep. everything else that's happy be happy. Exactly. And and uh, we've got enough monitoring for our simple problems, but the complex ones, those are the 80-20 problems. You know, it may only be 20% of our storage, but it's 80% of our problems. So you mentioned the sharks. Oh. Are you using any uh, QoS? Um, we've, we've, we've started to have a lot of conversations with the product management team and engineering on the directions we'd like to see QoS going. We're not using, we're not using a lot of it today. We'll probably start using a lot more of it once we're more universally at the 9.0, actually 9.1 code level, um, which will probably be set mostly by the middle towards the end of the year. Because a lot of our refresh, a lot of that's coming in under 9.1 on the 9,000 series systems. So we see that there's a lot there. We know there's a lot we can do with it, and we want to see what we can do to help, uh, help NetApp mature that forward and have a better product for everybody. What types of workloads are you putting on your, your NetApp systems? And what, this can be on tap or any of the stuff that we talked about before. I know we mentioned the video stuff with the E-Series. So, you know, let's talk about the, the cluster data on tap systems. What, what are you putting onto them and what sort of workloads are they doing? Well, the largest workload we're putting into a CMO today with, with our new purchases is, of course, our mail environment. You know, the mail environment exists pretty much in three different tiers of workloads. Um, top workload is a very transactional workload. Um, it's, uh, it's a database-style workload that manages what your mailbox looks like, what's in your mailbox, what you're doing in your different applications. So when you open up your, your mail app, it might tell you that you'll, you have something coming via UPS today in your day planner within the Yahoo apps and within the Yahoo uh, ecosphere. 
Um, below that, we've got you know a storage layer that stores you know the first couple of weeks of your email because you want that delivered to you quicker. As mail times out, it goes off into the archive environment, which is you know as you can imagine, many, 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 many dozens, you know, hundreds of of, of petabytes deep, and uh, that information stays there you know for you know the life of your your account. Um, a lot of people like to think uh, when they talk to us that our archive workload is very, very cold, very, very glacier-like. It, it's really not. Depending on the tools we develop internally and what we want our applications to present you with better data through the ecosphere that you have here, we may run a crawler that goes through and looks at vast amounts of the mail archive workload at any given time and who knows where it is. So we could have a brand new system that's all full of brand new archive work though that's only filled up in the last quarter and it's extremely busy. We can go over to an old an old seven mode pair on, on, on 3170s and it's just as busy because we're calling that workspace out there to help enrich in the environment that you that, that, mm -hmm. that you live in within your Yahoo ecosphere and your application mm -hmm. space. So the archive environment goes from dead quiet mm -hmm. two, three hundred ops a node to mm -hmm. 40, 50,000 ops a node in a day and it can sit there for a couple of weeks. So what the NetApps have to do when we put them there has to be durable because it's going to sit there um, and we don't have to think about it a whole lot. Um, and then when it gets busy, we don't want the system to suddenly decide that, oh, it's time to fail a bunch of hard drives and this componentry's gotten old and dusty. It doesn't. It just works and we're very happy with it. And that's why we work with NetApp, NetApp long term within our mail environment. We move into other environments that have a little bit more, a little bit more diverse workloads. We might look at Flickr. Um, yes, people upload videos, they upload files, but as they upload videos, we transcode them. Um, these may come in thousands and thousands by the second, you know, and the NetApp storage has to receive those, serve those off to transcoders, and then the final, uh, final output gets put somewhere else. Uh, people upload their images. We need to store those images. Um, the application space takes care of most of its resiliency between data centers. But both data centers where an application is talking to, they both need to be working within the same parameters. One can't be a lot slower than the other or queues fill up, and then applications don't like that. So the, the transparency of how we view the performance of our systems and how, uh, how do we put this, how predictable the performance of our systems are over long periods of time has also been very important to us. We don't hit a lot of bumps in the road. They don't do unknown things. And when we do have issues, we have no problems with support and dealing with the issue. And the filers are usually still up while we're going through these support challenges. So from a support point of view, the experience has also been very transparent and very predictable across our entire platform. All right. So we covered use cases. We covered how Yahoo uses NetApp. Um, the customer to customer tips. I thought that was a really yeah the best practices and stuff. Yeah, think just Everything. things that yes, things that you've learned in your experience that you would pass on to other new customers that to avoid situations that you've gotten yourself into or that have we've gotten you into. Everything's configured the same. So yeah, we've got a couple of thousand systems that only twenty five, maybe thirty people worldwide at an arc, at an operations level manage. We do have data, you know, data center support on swapping hard drives and the little things, but mm -hmm. everything's configured the same. I know you, you, you show me one system, I know how big the RAID group is on every other one. Um, interfaces, it's always That's the same. Okay. Port. That's okay. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's just a question. It, There's not always answers. You no, know, no, I, I understand that. It's just, it's like I said, you know, we've got all of this stuff, but the workload is inches deep. Probably the best piece of advice I could give somebody, you know, working with, 
some, many, or, or, or new to NetApp or, or any storage system is understand you have a cost of operation. You know, I know what it's going to cost to buy it. I've got my cost per gigabyte worked out. I know my cost per I.O. for I.O. intensive operations. Um, I've got all these worked, all these things worked out as, as the standard, you know, storage summary of how do I buy and deploy things. One thing that I've had a lot of uh, a lot of influence in my two years at Yahoo in the new rollouts of our new mail environments and some of our and some of our others has been understanding what your cost of failure is. Uh, everyone knows, yes, I can purchase you know you know clustered systems and I can do this and I can do that, but what a lot of people miss um, that I see commonly is. It's not that you're wasting investment purchasing more controller or disk resources than you need. It's when you outgrow your controller or disk resources as far as IOPS and performance, and you suddenly get to a point where you failed over, and instead of a 15 to 20, 25 millisecond environment, because you've got a system that was 75 to 90% busy on a regular basis, now it's way oversold, and the filer may be up and running, but people can't get their work done. The opportunity cost of failure becomes much more expensive than the opportunity to purchase more hardware back when you purchased the original system. So a lot of the influence I've had at Yahoo previous to uh, 8.3 and now 9.0 coming out, which has some fantastic metrics regarding utilization, um, overhead, and, uh, and IOPS remaining within the system, within the stack, is I brought in a concept of concurrency. Now, we're an NFS-only shop for the most point, and we don't have really good, say, SAN statistics, where you can look at a port and you can say, I've got a queue depth of this, and I'm running at this queue depth, and everything's fine. Yeah. Or if you take that to the broader example of, of a large SAN system, you say, I've got five target ports here, and I know I can only move 5,000 IOs per second as far as queue depth. I need to make sure that the sum of all of my queue depths and all of my targets are lower than that absolute number. So what we had to do to derive that out of NFS was take a look, take a look at Little's Law and understand what my you know process time and what my operations request uh, thresholds were. So in the example of what we did there, if you just take the count of all of your NFS operations, your NFS read style operations, because ONTAP works with reads and writes separately. So if we look at NFS reads as an operations per second, plus NFS get adders, plus NFS, all the different lookup metadata and read style things that host requests, add those up and then get an average number of that and then look at all of the latency figures on all those operations per second and average that out and then work the two together through Little's Law, we came up with a concurrency metric. That concurrency metric allowed me to provide the properties with governance. So instead of us trying to understand what's the peak CPU or what is the peak latency, because a lot of these workloads shifted and they were never the same workloads, you always have different operational figures as to what is the max that the system can do. Concurrency stayed stable. It stayed the same on the platform at all times. Your max concurrency number might be different on different platforms, but I could go into a mail environment and say, okay, you have two systems here. They're fairly well loaded. Let's fail them over and measure how the concurrency is going to be measured as independent systems and as one busy system, and then we'll take it to what its limits are. And as we do that repeatedly over and over and over, we got to understand what those limits of single operation would be, basically head by itself, 
don't let concurrency get over this number because if concurrency on two heads is lower than this number, they can fail over without a problem, guaranteed. And then when they fail over into one system, well, what's the max number? That currency metric then is 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 that used internally almost as like a check engine light? You know, if 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 you see that metric very you know uh, meaningfully yes. in any direction, you know something has has occurred in the environment, and you need to go find it. So how are you measuring concurrency? What you'll find is you track your concurrency through a system, as is the concurrency which is measuring the invisible queue depth you know, in an NFS stack on, on your ethernet wire, can go up and down very greatly and very wildly. But it may not necessarily affect your latency very much. This is good. This is measuring what the stack between the ethernet port and the spindle all the way back up through ONTAP is really trying to deliver you as far as the capacity. How many requests or messages can I receive on the front end and deliver in a reasonable period of time and get out, get out, get back out the front end again? So with that concurrency number, I can understand where does concurrency go as I measure it as the system gets busier through testing of workloads and failing out systems to where does it affect latency to where the system is no longer predictable? That's what we're trying to do with concurrency. If I can deliver a governance figure to my properties that reads like this, and I'm looking off one of my charts here. If we have a system that is not failed over, either of the two heads in that system can reach about 225 as a concurrency number. If these systems fail over, failed over, they should not pass 450. Now, all that is saying is if there is a performance problem that the property sees within a portion of their mail stack, this is asking them to look at a chart and understand is their system operating at or below a green level as a healthy two-node system in an HA pair? And if it is, it's probably not the storage. So don't call us immediately, and they've learned to focus back on their own stack. Um, beyond that, if it still looks like a filer issue, more often than not in that remaining percent, it's something wrong on a network. There's a network switch somewhere that's very, very slow and needs repaired. Uh, very, very, very few times is an actual filer problem. Now, if something happens or we want to perform our own maintenance on the system and we fail over one head to another and they come back and they say, hey, there's a problem, they have this higher number that was set at 450. Well, if the concurrency on the system operating as two nodes is at or below that number, they still know to look back in on their own processes and not the storage <laughs> environment. So using concurrency as a feedback, as a form of governance, has been very valuable in allowing the properties to understand how much workload can I put here until I know that if I put any more, I cannot survive an HA failover. Oh, that's fascinating. You guys have essentially developed your own internal version of an optimal point for NFS. Yes, and it's, and it's, and it's trying to peel open the cable and understanding yeah. what the Q depth of NFS is. I, lo I love that too. I love how you've encompassed the the entire round trip from from the applications perspective, so so that it really is, you know, as, as we said, it really can function as a check engine light, you know, for for operations. Hey, if if this number's beneath here, it's it's like an oil pressure on your car, right? It's beneath forty pounds, you're good. You don't yeah. have to worry about it. Yeah, and uh, and 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 beyond that, you know, using the data within within Ariyama's tool that captures and, and calculates and presents this data. They've added their own alerting to say, 
hey, concurrency has gone up over a certain workload, and 99 out of 100 times even with that type of alerting, what they're doing is they're noting changes in the workload on the system, which will affect concurrency because they've made changes at their application layer. So more often than not, that still doesn't come back to the storage team as a help. We see a problem. What is it? It's really, oh, we've changed the nature of our workload, and it exercises the storage layer harder than it did before. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, which 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 is still needs to be addressed, right? Because the application is suffering, so the business needs to take care of it. But at the same yes. time, that's not a problem. That's that's a change of requirements. So, so yes, both it, sides it, need to understand. Exactly, it's an indication. So if if something happens like that and it's prolonged, it's like, hey, storage, could you look at the system here? You know, the concurrency's been up higher than we expected it to be, but we did do a code push last week. Could you could just double check? Um, we're happy to work with them, but it's not a constant stream of fire alarms going off and a capture a bunch of purse stats just to hear, well, you've overloaded the system. What do you want us to do? So that's a lot of the positive work that we've done here with, uh, uh, with ONTAP and the way we use the systems and uh, make sure as we roll into our refresh, we're sizing them correctly, uh, going in by measuring this, and now with 9.0, backing that up with utilization and overhead numbers to make sure we're really, really understanding the capability of a system that can operate with no untoward impacts towards the end user, even in a failover mode, or if we need to request time to upgrade OS. You know, I would also go ahead and pat yourselves in the back. There's there's quite a bit of good practice there too, right? You know, go ahead and, and, and having a source of truth and establishing what that source of truth is going to be ahead of time before a crisis occurs, and then providing transparency for the greater organization. Like that's just, healthy IT. That's 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 what everyone's trying to get to these days. Right, right. And as, as a side note for, for, for you gentlemen to understand, um, I was presenting at Insight in Macau for someone who couldn't travel to Macau, and it was about uh, um, AMT and, 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 and some of the performance uh, um, consulting tools that, that customers can purchase services for. And one of the questions that came up out of that, well, can the tool tell the customer how much more workload they can put in the system and, and not have a failover disaster? And I kind of reached back to my own telco experience, and, and I said, I says, how many people in this room have worked in IT? And a lot of hands go up. It says, all right, leave your hands up. Lower your hand if you didn't work in the actual, you know, provisioning of Internet or telco services. A lot of hands still stayed up. Okay. Of the hands that are still up, Lower your hand if you've never, ever received an email from your telco or Internet provider that said, hey, we're going to be testing some links here in the greater Northern California area. You should not see a disruption, but this is a test of our backup systems on our sonnet ring or whatever it is for a large geographical area. And all of those hands stayed up. And I said, these are the people who knew how to provision storage because they're going to do a baseline. And once a year, they're going to fail it over and see how that did. And every year they're going to do that and make notes and they're going to understand how that's growing over time. And they're going to know when to provision more storage. The rest of you guys are just guessing. And that's really not NetApp's job. But you have the tools available to you to understand, if I fail over, am I going to have a problem? You need to do it. And that's what measuring this concurrency at the front end of, of going, okay, we're going to start loading up a system. And then we're going to test this. Yeah, you know, the, the mail application, the end users might see a couple of, you know, 404s here and there. 
but you're going to take that into a danger zone up and down and up and down and up and down. And you're going to understand as concurrency makes these big moves, latency stays real flat. But you get to a certain point to where if that concurrency goes up just a little bit more, the latency of the system just it becomes unstable. Yeah, and now you know your you you know your breakpoint, yeah. and that's per platform. You know you could say it's per configuration because if it's a flash system or a SaaS or a SATA system, how healthy the storage layer is affects concurrency. How healthy the networker network is affects you know where that breakpoint is. No, I take that back. The breakpoint's the same in in the controller. That's what we're really measuring there. We're measuring the controller, but everything around it has to be healthy. If you overrun the disk system, the controller is artificially impacted. ONTAP would love to move more messages between domains and all the funny stuff it does there, but if it's waiting on disk, it can't. If it's waiting on network or network's broken, it can't. So what you're doing with concurrency is you're measuring the controller. You're measuring the architecture of ONTAP. So I was going to ask earlier, you know, you mentioned the ONTAP 9 uh, headroom piece. Is that yes. kind of replacing some of this, or is that just enhancing it? Um, it it's both. Um, I, I don't believe any one metric ever tells you a full story. Um, you know, if people didn't take good notes, Nixon would still be president is usually my kind of my kind of advice there towards people getting I into performance analysis. <laughs> like, like the Futurama head? That. The Futurama <laughs> Nixon head? Oh. <laughs> Yeah. So what I'm trying to get across there is I can look at CPU, but I really can't tell anything with it by itself. I can look at CPU with latency, and I can kind of understand where my system is operating and what it breakpoints might be. I can look in concurrency where I'm looking at a lot of values and getting a lot of insight on how the architecture is doing. Now, I'm getting these other really, really useful tools and encounters out from ONTAP now as far as utilization and headroom, and available IOPS. Uh, we're absolutely going to use those together so we can even more finely tune that guidance and governance back into the properties and application layers and make everybody's life a lot easier. Yeah, if, if, if I may, I think I would, I would try to throw the TLDR on the end of that uh, and, and just kind of say, have a tool. Make sure you're collecting this stuff. Be monitoring your systems. You don't have to be proactive with that data, but make sure you're getting it. Because Absolutely. Later on, when you want to get proactive, you need that data source. Yeah, you, you can use performance data in one of two ways. You can use it strategically or you can use it tactically. Um, I got a problem right now. I need to be very tactical about that. I need to upload. You know, I need to start gathering a per stat and not, not wander around the support process. I need to start doing that now. I need to upload performance archive data to NetApp right now. Okay, now I can pick up the phone and start yammering on about, okay, oh, that was wrong. Then I need to pick up the phone, open a support case, and start working towards that resolution if it doesn't make sense to me right now. But being very tactical about how you use performance data is, is probably the most important thing you can do with it. Always be gathering it for that, for, 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 for that, for that strategic use. And that strategic use is, you know, this system is really busy. Why is, it, why is it busy today? Has it always been busy? What does the last three months look like? You know, that's very important data. That's, that's very good data to use, especially when it comes towards looking at utilization and available IOPS. Um, even if you don't think the workload has changed, maybe it has changed. Maybe the property on the other end is using another CMS tool that they weren't using three months ago, and it's 
more metadata driven than simple read and write driven. It's going to it's going to exercise the system differently, and you're going to get different results out of utilization and available headroom. So, keep that data as as long term as reasonable. Um, OPM keeps that data for 12, 13 months, I believe. Um, don't quote me on that, but I think it's somewhere in there. That's a really good, you know, you know, strategic tool towards looking at how your systems have operated over a long period of time. Because if you don't know where you've been, you don't know where to go. And sooner or later, you're going to have to buy more. You're going to have to refresh more. And you're going to have to support that financial problem to people in your company that don't care how the system works. They don't want to even know why it works. They just want to understand why do you need to spend this money on this solution. It sounds too expensive. And it's a difficult process without good data that people can understand very clearly. All right, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. If anyone wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do so out on social media? Uh, probably the easiest easiest place to find me is on LinkedIn, uh, Jeff Moeller, M-O-H-L-E-R. Uh, you'll see a picture of me and, the, me and my family flying an airplane there on my profile, so you know we got the right guy. Excellent. And thanks again, Jeff, for sharing your experiences in the storage industry and with NetApp in general. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at NetApp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontentpodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team and Mr. Jeff Moeller of Yahoo, thanks for listening. Yahoo! Are you guys calling yourself Yahoo these days still? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're still Yahoo. We're looking forward to the Verizon, uh, the Verizon work we have ahead of us, uh, and I'm sure NetApp's going to be a big, big part of that. Look, looking very much forward to it. Justin, you're just deflecting because someone else figured out how to measure NFS before you. Hey! Is it just me? I'm going to buy that from them. I'm going to buy it and oh, yeah. market it and sell it. It's, it's just a specially shaped stick, that's all it is. <laughs> oh, okay.